God's Word and turn to Paul's letter to the church at Corinth, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, as we begin a series I've entitled Help for a Hurting Church, begins in earnest, even in the very opening words of this letter, Paul's letter to a beleaguered church, a difficult, struggling church. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, I'll be reading just the first three verses as we consider this, the apostolic greeting of this letter this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning with verse 1, reading through verse 3. This is the word of the Lord. Let's give attention to it even this morning. 1 Corinthians 1, beginning with verse 1. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's pause and ask for God's help as we consider this portion of his word this morning together. Father, as we now come before that which sits in judgment over us, indeed the infallible and errant and inspired truth word that you have penned by your spirit for the churches, for your people. We ask, Lord, that through it, your word would go forth as a demonstration of your spirit. It would not return void. It would accomplish its purpose to which you send it. And you would open our eyes and our ears to all that is here. And help us by your spirit, as promised, we ask for Christ's sake. Amen. I suspect many of you, if not all of you, have at one time or another heard this expression, divide and conquer. This is a strategy, isn't it, for achieving political or even military control. And as that expression is applied to the church, it is that effort even of the evil one to destroy or at least attempt to destroy the church, her witness and even her effectiveness in the world. Divide and conquer. In these three verses, Paul, even now, even at the very onset of this letter, written to a troubled church, a difficult church, one that's having many, many difficult problems and issues, some of their own doing, some of them not, Paul begins to set forth the importance of a unified church. He does it subtly, very pastorally, with great gentleness, for he will come back to this matter of unity in the church in earnest in a very few verses beyond this opening. It stands at the head of the letter, probably because for the Apostle Paul, very few subjects other than Christ and Him crucified mattered to him when it came to the churches, and that is that the churches would behave as one. That they would behave as unified brothers and sisters in the church. Not uniformed, but unified. Centered around one hope, one purpose, one mission, one person, and that is Christ. It stands here at the head because this is near and dear to the great apostle, near and dear to his heart, even near and dear, even as it was prayed by the Savior himself in John 17, that we would be one. 
Here in this passage, we see in this letter, indeed, as we go through it, we see not that at all. We see factions, we see dissents, we see cliques that come from every corner, every place. And every church, at some point or another within its history, due to the fact that every church has sinners in it, and when you put enough sinners in the same place, you're bound to have trouble. At some point in time, and these kinds of things could come, can come, will come to this church. We don't want that, obviously. We seek to avoid that. That's not anything we long for. But the fact remains that these things do happen because there is a true enemy out there who hates the Lord Jesus Christ, and he hates the church. He hates you. And he'll do anything he can to divide and conquer the church that can never be conquered. When those times come, brothers and sisters, they must be resisted. And, and, and they are indeed resisted when you know who you are in Christ and then live that way in relationships to the bigger picture, and that is the picture of the kingdom of Christ. A picture much bigger than Providence Presbyterian Church, for we are merely a dot in the entire scheme of eternity. The bigger picture of the coming kingdom, the kingdom, the kingdom of which Christ is the head and of which he leads and guides with perfect wisdom. As we seek to avoid these kinds of things that were pitfalls for the church at Corinth, the world will take notice. They will know that we love him, that we're united to him, that we follow him. When? When we love one another, when we seek to serve one another, when we seek to act on behalf of one another, when we seek to do everything that this church at Corinth isn't really doing right now. And frankly, you cannot love, really love one another if you're consumed with petty differences and allegiance and alliances that have absolutely no place in the church of Christ. And so the letter begins, really, in earnest, with this central problem. Reminding the church at Corinth of who they are, how they got there, what they're supposed to be, And how they are, in fact, united to not just that church local there in that place, in that Grecian city. They are related to churches all over the world. They're related to bodies of believers everywhere. That this is not just about them. It's about everyone. It's about the kingdom. It's about the church of Christ universal. He reminds them of the necessity to be one. As they are one. As Christ has given it to them. So this morning, with God's help, I want to show you that in this apostolic greeting, I want to show you the main features of the book and the importance of the church in relationship to one another and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, it's difficult, of course, to start a series and a letter such as the letter to the church at Corinth without giving at least some semblance of where we're headed and what is going on in the book, some of the themes, structure, author, who are the recipients, and that's part and parcel of starting a series, and So I admit that, and I will tell you up front, that point one is going to be merely, mostly academic, I recognize. But it's not unimportant if we're to rightly understand the heart of the apostle and the issues that affect this church, this struggling church. And so I'm going to show you the greeting of the apostle, the main features of the book, and the importance of the church as it relates to one another and, of course, to the Lord Jesus Christ. Two, two points we will consider even in these three verses together 
First, we will consider some introductory matters. I recognize that's not all that uh, exciting a point. What else do you call it? Introductory matters. And then we will consider the important remarks. The introductory matters, giving background, authorship, and so forth of the book, and then some introductory, some important remarks is given to us, especially in verse 2 of our passage. First, these introductory matters, who is the author? The text is quite clear. It makes it obvious. Anybody who can read can see that the letter is, is, is offered by Paul, the Apostle Paul himself. Maybe you don't know, and you should know, that ancient letters are not constructed the way we write letters, of course. When we write a letter, we write the letter, and we say, dear whoever, blah, 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 and we get to the end, signed, respectfully, love, whatever, Joe, Jane, Sue, they don't do that in the ancient world. In fact, I would suspect that there may have been times when you've received a letter, when you started to read it, you weren't really sure who was writing it, so you peeked to the end to see, and it changed, even colored the way you understood what you were reading. Maybe it's an enemy, and so you read it differently, but it's a dear friend, and you read it with great affection. In the ancient world, the letter began with the identification of the author, the person, the name, Paul. This assertion, of course, is, is really hardly questioned by most scholars today. He is the one who saw the risen Lord on the road to Damascus. He was a former persecutor of the church, a blasphemer. He was an insolent opponent, but who received the very grace and kindness of the Lord and was converted to the Christian faith that he formerly persecuted You think God's grace can be outrun? Paul tried. He failed. The title that Paul gives to himself here is one of apostle. Paul called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus. The term in the original simply means to be sent out, a sent out one. It has a wide variety of meaning in the New Testament But here it is used in its most technical sense of a person who has the special task of founding and establishing churches as a messenger of God himself. That is to say that apostles, the apostles, the ones that were sent directly by Christ himself, who saw the risen Lord, which is one of the requirements, spoke on authority, with authority even by themselves, as they rooted that authority in the one who gave them that authority. We are to confuse the apostles with what we in Presbyterianism call elders. They are not the same. They may be in the line of the apostles, but they do not speak with that same kind of authority. They must speak collectively. They must speak as one whole, as a multitude or a plurality of them. And even then, they fail Here, the apostle, he lays claim to this authoritative grant of Christ himself to the church. Three things to note about this apostleship as Paul highlights it for us. First, his apostleship is by divine call. Paul didn't wake up one morning and decide, you know what? I think it would be really neat to be an apostle. I read a book about being an apostle. 
And now I'm going to be an apostle. And so I'm an apostle. It's not how it happened. It's not how it works. It's not how it works today. It didn't work that way then. It doesn't work that way now in the church. Pastors, elders, deacons, they don't call themselves. They're called by the will of God. They are called by Him. It is a divine call. A call of the Spirit. Recognized and identified by the people, yes. But it is still a calling of God. A calling of His own purpose and will. Second, it is an apostleship by divine origin. Not only was he called to this, it was rooted indeed in the very acts and works of Christ himself as he called him to it on that Damascus road and even said that Paul is going to realize, he's going to see the things that he must suffer for my name's sake. He spoke for the Savior. He spoke the words of Christ to the people. Third, not only is it a divine call rooted in a divine origin, his apostleship has a divine vocation. That's to say that he was given by the church, even in Ephesians 2.20, as a pillar and foundation of the church to speak to the church, to erect it, to help it, to do the things that he was told to do that the church of Christ might advance. It was his mission in life, his labor, And so no wonder then, therefore, whenever he encountered a church like Corinth, but even a a joyful church like Philippi, that he would write to them. He would show, show forth his care for them, his concern for them, not just as an apostle, but also as a pastor. And so Paul is the author. He is a, a man with unique gifts and unique office of which there are no more today, regardless of what you see in the sign when you drive down the road, Apostle so-and-so, blah, blah, blah. Okay, that's nice, great, I'm, I'm, that, that's wonderful. means nothing. When the last the apostles died, there were no more. They were unique to this period as the church was in its infancy. But then he adds this, this odd character, this name that is seemingly somewhat ambiguous, even vague, and in fact... Never heard of again in the entire Bible. And you might wonder, as a good Bible student, and you should wonder, you see that, uh, uh, called by the will of God, Paul says, to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes. Now, who is this character? Where does he come from? What are we make, to make about this mention of and our brother Sosthenes? It's very interesting, the way it's worded and even constructed even in your English Bible, but also in the original. The wording is vitally important. First, Paul is not calling him an apostle. The word order makes that abundantly obvious. He is not assigning to this man, the brother, Sosthenes, apostleship of any kind. The word order, as given, avoids that possibility What is most likely here, and whether this is definitive or not, it's hard to know. Scholars are divided on this, but I think, at least as your pastor and as one who has to preach this, I think Paul is using his name as a point of reference with the Corinthian church. Now, why would I say that? Because there is one strong possibility that this man mentioned, Sosthenes, is the one mentioned in Acts 18.17. Now, in Acts 18, 17, he was the ruler of the synagogue in Corinth who was beaten in the presence of Gallio. 
that is the case, then this man has now converted to Christianity. He is a man that the Corinthian church knows. It's a point of reference. It's a point of contact. Paul uses his name to endear himself to them as he seeks to help them in some very critical, difficult issues that he will eventually address. In fact, the way the pronouns are constructed, even here in the verse, leads one to that interpretation because of the use of the word our before brother, which seems to indicate that the Corinthians knew this character. All of this is reference to the author. What about the recipients? Who are these people? Most of you who grew up in the church know that the church of Corinth is exactly the church you don't want to be like. It's the opposite of what the church should be, and in, much, in, 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 in a great measure, that's true. Well, it's beginning of these people. What is the beginning of this church? The letter is addressed to the church of God at Corinth, as Paul makes very clear. This is the church that was founded by the Apostle Paul. One commentator states it this way. He says, Luke, the author of the book of Acts, provides some important information about the founding of the church in Corinth during Paul's second missionary journey. This is around, somewhere around, dates are fuzzy here, but A.D. 50 to 52. Paul arrived in Corinth after his visit to Athens, an experience that had impressed in his mind afresh the foolishness of worldly wisdom. Evidently, this incident with the Athenian philosophers had made Paul more determined than ever to preach the simple message of the cross. However offensive it might appear to some, which, by the way, he comes back to that message in this letter, Paul's ministry at Corinth lasted a fairly long time, more than 18 months. But what is his current situation? There it was in its infancy. It was a a baby church. Well, if the letter was written roughly between A.D. 55 and A.D. 56 from Ephesus, as most scholars believe, and if Paul founded the church in A.D. 50 to 52, one would expect some measure of growth, some maturity, But we don't find that, do we? In fact, we find very much the opposite going on. Factions being formed, allegiances to people, um, abuse of the Lord's Supper, matters of immorality, some of it's so gross that even the Gentiles weren't involved in it. And the list goes on and on. You would expect to find some maturity, but it wasn't occurring. Their walk with Christ instead was degrading as evidenced by the numerous issues present in the life of the church. Now, what were those issues? What are some of the issues that we're going to see in this letter? You might think, man, does our pastor really think providence is this bad? I mean, are we, is this why he picked 1 Corinthians? No, that's not the reason. But, you know, if we're not careful, we can be just like the church at Corinth, and we can degrade right into these issues overnight. And so perhaps it's being preached as a mere warning to how we deal with these things. What are some of the issues, the occasion of which this letter was written by the Apostle Paul? Well, there are a number of them. I'm just going to give you a highlight. I'm not going to hit every one. First, as I've already mentioned, there's division among the membership. This is a serious departure from a central theme of Paul desired for all the churches that he pastored, that he planted, that he cared for. There's abuse of the sacraments, especially that of the Lord's Supper. There's chaos in worship. Chaos. 
is going on. There are other theological problems ranging from immorality, church discipline, misunderstanding of the resurrection, lawsuits, marriage, even divorce. All of these things are happening at this church that is five or six years old. Apparently wandering from the central tenets of the gospel. And what heads all of them, if we take the letter as it's written, and what Paul addresses first in the long line of things that he will deal with, what heads them all and what causes most of them is this division, this disunity, this separation, this faction, these cliques, and I like that person better. I'm not going to talk to that person because I, he's not of this group, but that starts it all. You want to divide a church? It's real simple. Let me tell you how. Start gossiping and slandering and getting into the corners and starting these factions and these cliques, and you'll lead, it'll lead to chaos. I've said this before, I'll say it again, that you want to split a church, it'll happen that way faster than if I got up here and preached heresy. We must be careful. Heading the entire list of problems that Paul addresses is this whole question of division within the church, but he does it to guide the church as well. He has to come along as a battering ram to beat, beat him upside the head. He does do that in places. He, he's very strongly, strongly worded things that are said, hard to even hear or bear. But he does it because he loves the church. He's concerned. He wants to give guidance to this. This letter he writes here appears indeed to be the second letter he wrote to them. You might be scratching your head saying, I've never heard that before. Well, now you have. The first letter appears, uh, the first letter that Paul wrote we've lost, is lost. We don't have any record of it. We have no knowledge of it. The Holy Spirit didn't want us to have it for whatever reason. It seems that in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 9 that there's at least an allusion to that idea. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. What letter? What letter are you talking about, Paul? Now, the church at Corinth would know, wouldn't they, what letter he's talking about. You read that and go, I have no idea what you mean, because you don't have that letter. They did. You can see how badly they're degressing, not advancing, they're going the other way. Even after his first letter that we do not have, it did not survive. It appears also that this letter that Paul is writing is a response to a letter that, they had, that he had received from them as they inquired about several matters. But through this letter, what needs to be seen is not necessarily an attitude of scolding, but of pastoral care. Help, as it were, for a hurting church, hence the title of the series. He seeks to give them guidance to the church. It carries with it two major emphases. First, it is authoritative. Paul's not out there whipping around his opinions. Oh, let me just, you know, this sounds good to me. I'll use some worldly wisdom. Yeah, solve them people, their problems. No, he's an apostle. He speaks with authority. He speaks with authority into the church here at Corinth, a church he planted. But he also speaks pastorally out of a heart that is burdened for the people. Now, you witness that every Lord's Day. You witness it here. As your pastor, I have authority 
I know some of you might not like that, but it's a fact nonetheless. I do have authority. Your elders have authority too. My authority is rooted in the word of God, not like an apostle's was, but it's different. But the fact remains that authority speaks from here as it's rooted in the centrality of Scripture, but it should also be pastoral. What does that mean? It means that the heart of the apostle as the heart of every minister of the gospel should be for the spiritual well-being of the sheep, regardless of where they are in their current struggle. I suspect most pastors want better for the sheep than they want for themselves. I, I guess that's just part comes with the calling. Paul wants better for the church at Corinth. Burdened with the needs of the people. He says as much in his second letter, or if you will, his third letter. The second letter as we have it in the Bible, 2 Corinthians 11 and verse 28. When he says how he is indeed burdened for the churches. And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety. Oh wait, anxiety sin, Paul. No, it's not, he doesn't mean it that way. He means burden. The daily pressure on me for the burden I have, the anxiety I have for all the churches. And I, frankly, no pastor worth his weight who doesn't feel that kind of burden it should be in the ministry. Paul felt it. Not merely as an apostle with authority. He didn't just come in and say, do this, do that, bow, kneel. No, he loved them. He wanted to give them godly, wise instruction that they might mature and grow in the faith. And that is the method upon which he begins this letter. He begins it with authority. He begins it with a, as, with a pastor's heart and a desire to see his people, the people, here at Corinth grow and mature. Now, with this background firmly in place, the apostle begins authoritatively and pastorally to address addressing the concerns that are before the church. The first matter is embedded in the greeting. It's there. The tendency is to ignore the opening of Paul's letters, I suspect, because of the repetition that we see in most of them. Grace to you and peace from God our Father. And that's repeated quite frequently in Paul's letters. But it's not to be dismissed as just his habit. He really wants grace for the church. He really wants peace in the church, especially this church that right now has no peace. But we tend to skip over these early verses because, well, I've read that before. I know what that. Okay, I want to get to the meat and potatoes. Let's get to the really fun stuff like 1 Corinthians 5. Let's really get there because that's really interesting stuff. No. These words are inspired of the Holy Spirit. They're important for the church to hear, and we must not ignore them. We must recognize them as vitally important. These important early remarks set some of the stage for what he will eventually address. He describes them, doesn't he, as a church. Not as apostates, not as a bunch of bozos, derelict, like he, Galatians, you know, where he's opening lines, he practically scathes them for being a, giving over to the silliness of false gospel. What is wrong with you people? R.C. Sproul. No, he addresses them as a church to the church of God in Corinth. 
He employs the term ecclesia. It's a rich theological term, and I guarantee you I'm not going to do it justice here. And books have been written just on this one term. But suffice it to say, it is really a term that highlights a body of people called out of the world. The term is used in the Septuagint, that is the, Hebrew, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible, in a host of places. For instance, Deuteronomy 4 and verse 10. In its theological use, it is to be understood as a local community of believers, like a gathered community, those who have submitted themselves to Jesus Christ. With that said, two distinctions are important to note. Paul is not saying when he says to the church of God that is in Corinth, he is not saying that every single person that's sitting in the pews in that city, in that home, wherever it is they were gathered, probably in a home, are really believers. Some of them are very much not acting like them. He's not making a universal statement as to every person at Corinth that goes to this church that they actually know Christ, they're elect, they're going to heaven. That's not what he's saying. But they are a church nonetheless, visibly. They have united themselves to one another. They have come together on the Lord's Day as one another. You do that every Sunday, and I'm not going to sit here and tell you that I think every one of you, I'm positive, absolutely, definitively know for certain that you're all going to heaven because I don't know that. So I preach the gospel, and I let the Spirit apply it as he might. And as I told the new members class this morning, I knew of a man who was in church for 20 years hearing the gospel, and he finally repented and came to Christ. You see, it happens. No, Paul's speaking to the visible church, those who are gathered here, the gathered body of believers at Corinth. They are a sanctified church, he says. Wow. He just keeps piling on these descriptors to the church of God that is at Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus. Paul refers to the people at Corinth as a sanctified church. Now, you've read the letter. Most of you know the letter well enough to know that you think, Paul, have you lost your mind? What do you mean they're sanctified? They're acting like a bunch of apostates. What is he referring to? What is even he driving at here? He's driving at the point that they are under the ownership of God by divine call. It is the church of God. The genitive there is important. It possesses, it shows an ownership. This church doesn't belong to them. It doesn't belong to you. Providence doesn't belong to you. Providence doesn't belong to me. I know sometimes I act like it does, but it doesn't. It belongs to Christ. These people that are sanctified by the work of God. According to one commentator, the term then should be understood as a reference to their conversion. Believers are set apart for God just as were the utensils in the temple, which will become a point of great importance when we get to chapter 6. It is precisely because they are set apart by God that they are to live lives in such a manner. They must bear the mark of the one who has been set apart by divine origin. Yet this church is hardly doing that. Now, anybody want to argue to the difference? They're a church called out by God. They're sanctified by God. Paul goes on. He says, not only are these things true, they're a holy church too. It's like, oh, come on. 
How's that? The ESV unfortunately translates the word there, uh, saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. That word there really should be translated as holy. The word saints just leaves so, such a huge, broad understanding of what it could possibly mean that it almost loses its influence. It's a holy church. The term has its origin in Exodus 19 and verses 5 and 6, where the people are called to be a holy people. But again, the problem for these converts to Christianity here at Corinth is that they are not living holy lives. Notice how Paul phrases the expression, called to be holy. Called, what calling? The calling of justification, the effectual calling of those sanctified, set apart from the world into God's glorious presence as the church of the Lord Jesus Christ are called then therefore to live holy lives before the world. And it's quite obvious that they are not doing that very well. In fact, Paul later says that the world doesn't even do some of the things you're doing. And then he completes this list by saying to them how they are a unified church. Really? When we get right into the chapter, we're going to find out that that unity wasn't all that good or great. But Paul turns to what he will very much take up in greater detail almost immediately. The issue of unity. One commentator says it this way. Paul is giving them a gentle nudge. You like that? A gentle nudge. I read that and I said, that's not me. I'm not much for gentle nudges. I'm more for like, just go, do you have to forgive me. I'm working on it. Paul gives a gentle nudge to remind them that their own calling to be God's people belongs to a much larger picture. That is, they belong to one another and also to a much bigger church, connected through all ages and places. Their behavior, however, is divisive, and it is doing damage to that witness and that testimony. We're going to see that in due course as we continue further into this chapter. Now you read all this and you think, okay, so what? What does this have to do with providence? We're not the church at Corinth. We don't live in the first century. Paul didn't write this to us, but he did. What does this have to do with us? What does that have to do with providence today? How do these four things that Paul lays out for us here, what does that have to do with us? Well, I know you couldn't wait. I'm going to tell you. First, brothers and sisters, we are the church. We are the church called by God. You didn't put it here. The church planner in the PCA that dropped this church in Evansville, he didn't do it either. I certainly didn't do it. Nobody did it. God did it. It's his work. We are the church. We are the called out ones assembled together as a body of believers. Paul will address this even further in chapter 12 as he talks about us being a body, one body, with many functions and many parts and many things to do, hands and feet and mouth and and so forth. We call ourselves Providence Presbyterian Church for good reason. We are not a bowling club. We are not a bridge club. We are not some group 
that hangs out on Sunday. We are unique. We have the ecclesia of God. We have been assembled together by God's own doing. We call ourselves providence, a rich theological term. We're Presbyterian. That is to say, our government, it isn't accidental, just like it wasn't accidental for Paul to refer to those at Corinth as the church of God. We believe that the biblical form of government, dare I say it, the only biblical form of government in the church, in the Bible, is Presbyterianism. And we are the church, Providence Presbyterian Church. Not Providence Presbyterian Bridge Club, Knitting Club, Bowling Club, the church of God, the ecclesia of God, He put us together. Every one of you here today. You got here because I know you thought you, you chose it, you made that decision, you, you thought about it, you weighed the differences, and you wondered if you could put up with a 50-minute sermon every Sunday, all of it. You weighed all those things, and, and you made that choice. Well, in some sense, you did. But you know what? God ultimately, by His providence, stuck you here. It was his doing. Just as he stuck all those people together in Corinth, he stuck all of you together here in this place. By his divine providence, he brought you to intersect your lives with other lives at this point in time. According to his own wisdom and purpose for the good of the church, for the good of, for your good. We are a sanctified church. You are part of this church by divine calling. What is that calling? That which the love of God was demonstrated in the offering of His Son, in which you trust and believe is your only hope. When people join this church, they meet with the elders. They give what we call a credible profession of faith. doesn't mean I can see your heart. I can't see your heart. But we listen to their profession. We take at them at their word. They're trusting Christ alone for salvation, not in themselves. They, they know they need Christ. They're a sinner without Him, hopelessly ruined. And we listen to that and we believe. And then they're, they're joined officially by membership with one another here, sanctified as it were, set apart from the world by public profession. And then, therefore, we come apart from the world on the Lord's Day as a living picture of our true eternal status before God. Put it a different way, you and I, we, you, you, we are unique. We are a unique people. There's nobody like us in the world. Not us, just providence. I'll get to that, the universal aspect. There's nothing like the church anywhere. We're a holy church. As the called out ones, sanctified in Christ, we are called to live as becomes a follower of Christ. As Paul is going to call the church at Corinth, he calls the church at Providence to live as becomes a follower of Christ. There's nothing more repugnant than saying I'm a Christian and living like the world. And so, we live that way. Called to be holy. As those who love and know the Lord Jesus Christ. And fourth, we are a unified church. Now, you may think that's not true. It doesn't change the reality of it at all. We are unified around one purpose and one person and one person only. And it's not pastor, and it's not the elders, and it's not the deacons, and it's not your favorite person in this room. It is Christ. And as long as we maintain that mentality as a church, 
uh, we avoid the scathing remarks of the Apostle Paul that are coming in chapter 1 and beyond. As at Corinth, we are unified church. How? Well, really two ways. First, universally. The idea that Paul puts together here, as he says that, in every place, those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Paul clearly has a bigger picture in mind when he puts it just that way. Universally, you and I, we are are united to our brothers and sisters all over the world due to the blood of Christ. I know most of you will never meet them. At least this side of glory. We have a relationship with them that is closer and tighter than the one we enjoy with our blood relatives. As Presbyterians, we recognize the biblical call to be united with others in the broader church. That's why we're united to other churches in a local area, in a region, that we might labor together for the sake of Christ and the kingdom. We do it as one. Yes, we have our differences. Yes, we have our disagreements. You know what? Every local church has differences. Every local church has disagreements. They come, they go. People come, people go. It happens. It doesn't change the fact that we are united universally to the body of Christ all over the world. But we're also locally an expression of that. Here in this place on Ferris Avenue, Fairs Avenue, before I get corrected by one of my elders. There's no room for division here. None. No room. In fact, division will lead to a host of problems. Division occurs when loyalties are confused, tongues are not controlled, slander and gossip appear, and then factions are the result We see that in verse 11, jumping out of my text, but for it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. Petty differences, fighting over stupid things. Oh, they're not stupid to me. Yeah, well, you know what? That's why the Lord gave you elders, and that's let them work work on it. How can we express this unity we have, putting it bluntly? If you are a Christian, you are united to one another. Look, I I look around the room, and I'm going to tell you candidly, I know most of you pretty well. Not all of you, but I know most of you pretty well. And, you know, some of you got some really odd, well, quirks. Oddities. One of you keeps their home at 52 degrees, and there's icicles growing down from the ceiling. Some of you, the house is so hot, I can't stand being in there for more than 15 seconds. I feel like I'm going to lose about 40 pounds. These are just minor things. You know, some of you, look, we all have them. I got to tell you, we are all strange people. When you look around the room, we all got these weird things going on, different habits and things. I've got them, you've got them, we all have them. But you know, the Lord slammed you together. He put you in the same room in the same church, as he said, live together in unity, walk with each other, help each other, encourage one another, rally around the gospel. Do that and you will be blessed. Don't worry about all these dumb little things. The people at Corinth are obsessed with all these different factions and issues. May it never be known here in this church. You're here because God put you here. Period. 
Some of you can tell stories, and I've heard them, of how the Lord led you to providence. And I'm grateful that he did. But it had nothing to do with me, and really had nothing to do with you either. It was all an act of God's providence, because he knows what's best for his church, and he knew that the church needed you as much as you needed the church to work together and to dwell together as one. How can you do that? What are some of the things we can do? Some of you could improve in some of these areas. Some of you are doing them very well. You figure it out. And if you don't know, ask me later, and I'll tell you which one you are. Or at least I'll suggest it in a pastorally gentle way. We express this by praying with and for one another. Most important thing you'll ever do for anybody here in this church is to pray for them. And I'm not sure we actually believe that, but it is true nonetheless. Praying with and for one another, that includes seizing the opportunities afforded you to gather with your brothers and sisters to pray. You know what I'm talking about. I'm not even going to say it. Second, acts of kindness and love, that includes being hospitable to one another, serving one another. You know that old expression, I'm not sure how accurate this is, but you know, it kind of gets to the point. 20% of the people are doing 80% of the work. That's actually true here in this church, as I've witnessed it since we've got this building. Some of you don't lift a finger to help clean up the building, clean up the refreshment area. I mean, it's always the same people. I've noticed this. How about jumping in if you're able, physically able? Help one another. Serve one another. This is what it looks like to be the church. Third, seeking to meet the needs of the saints. Now here, I commend you. I think this church is, is tremendous in that area. I've never seen anything like it, frankly. Quickly ready to help meet the needs of people. Paul appeals to that in 1 Corinthians 16. He tells this beleaguered church, look, you're going to, give, you're going to help with this collection. You're going to do this thing. You need to do this thing. You need to help contribute to the needs of the brothers and sisters that don't live in your city. They live somewhere else. Those are just three. I could give you 33, but you don't want to be here all day. Fact is that God has put us together according to his own sovereign good pleasure. Just as he put the church at Corinth together according to his sovereign good pleasure. To act or behave as though he didn't is repulsive to his name. We should rejoice that he has determined to stick the lot of you in the same church. Even with your quirks and weird idiosyncrasies. Who cares? But you're still the church, called of God, to be sanctified and holy, and to live in unity with one another, with the bigger picture always in view, and that is the advancement of the kingdom of Christ. So remember, you are sanctified in Christ. You are set apart for his service and not your own. You're called to be holy. Let's strive to do that. Live to the glory of God in every area. Shorter catechism, question number one, but more importantly, 1 Corinthians 10, 31. And third, we are called to be one church. Let's strive to serve one another, avoiding the factions that come when Satan gains a foothold and seeks to conquer by division. Let's strive to remember that there's a much bigger picture than the 80 or 90 people in this room. That picture is rooted in the mission and work of Christ. In short, it is about His kingdom and His righteousness. 
Therefore, serve one another, help one another, love one another, pray for one another, fellowship with one another. As you do that, the Lord will bless. He will bless the labors of His people when they strive in this way. No divide and conquer here at Providence. No, instead, let's resist that. Let's resist that by the grace of God with His help. And as we do, we'll see the gospel advance here in this community. Amen. Our Father, we thank You for Your Word and for all that it teaches us, even in these, these words that are given as a, even a, as a greeting to the church. They remind us of so much, and we pray that we would seize hold, uh, lay hold of those things, meditate upon them, seek to bring forth fruit of it in our own lives. Be merciful to us, we pray, for Christ's sake. Amen.